This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bennell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with journalist and author John Dodge about his new book, A Deadly Wind, from Oregon State University Press. It's a look back at the 1962 Columbus Day storm that devastated the Pacific Northwest. Computer modeling was crude. No weather satellites, no Doppler radar. They had next to no information of what was coming across the vast Pacific Ocean toward the West Coast. John Dodge is a retired journalist who's lived in the Puget Sound area for most of his life. On the morning that we talked, Hurricane Florence had just come ashore in North Carolina, and a light mist was falling over much of western Washington. I spoke with John Dodge by phone from his home in Olympia. John Dodge, thanks for joining us on Columbia Conversations. And so um, Columbus Day Storm, which your book is about, it's well known by a lot of people, but it's not known by everyone since so many thousands of people have moved to this area uh, since the storm happened and since it's been part of the consciousness. But for someone who's never heard of it, tell me, what is the Columbus Day Storm? Well, the Columbus Day Storm occurred in October of 1962, October 12, 1962, and it was... Uh, and what we call an extratropical windstorm, which is a cyclone, but it's it's not a hurricane. It has a lot of similar characteristics to a hurricane in a typhoon, but it it's basically caused by different pressure gradients and temperature differences in the air, not warm water like this Hurricane Florence that's striking the Carolinas as we speak. However, uh, the thing that makes this storm so special is that it, it was the most powerful windstorm to strike the West Coast in recorded history. Yeah, it must be really rare because it really is, it's part of the mythology around here. If you were living here in the early 1960s, as my family was, I wasn't born yet, but I was born in the late 60s, and I ended up hearing stories about the Columbus Day storm from my parents, my older brothers and sisters, my whole life. It seems to have really stuck into people's minds. I, I agree. I think that it was a seminal moment for many people. And in fact, as I did my research on the storm and I talked to storm survivors, they immediately would share their story of where they were and what happened to them the night of or the afternoon, depending on where you were, of uh, Friday, October 12, 1962. It it stuck with people through their lives. It It was... I'm not sure if it's totally on par with the assassination of JFK, but it had that kind of lasting impact on people. Oh, yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's just, it's it's something that, um, what I really like about is that it draws people together. And obviously it was a deadly storm, and I think something like 49 people died. But the people who survived share this this experience in common which unites them together and makes them feel like they're part of the Pacific Northwest. We don't have events like that very often around here. You know, thank goodness in many ways, whether it's an earthquake or a storm. Yeah. And our sports championships where people unite in a similar fashion are pretty darn rare too. So this, I was always kind of jealous of my older siblings and parents for having survived the storm. <laughs> Maybe our power, we, I grew up on Rose Hill in Kirkland, you know, between, um, kind of between Kirkland uh-huh. and Redmond on the east side of Lake Washington in the Seattle suburbs. And our power was out for a few days. 
my parents were cooking on the, uh, they were warming the house with the fireplace and cooking on our old Coleman camp stove. Again, I grew up on these myths, and I just, I envy the people who survived the storm. Yeah, what, what your family went through was played out in, in thousands of homes all across the Northwest. Now, were you alive for the storm? Were you in the Northwest? Yeah, yeah, I'm, a, I'm approaching my 70th birthday in October, and so I was a uh, 14-year-old boy, and we uh, were, there was a certain irony in what happened to our family that night. We were, uh, at the time, living in a very wooded area near Olympia, Washington, and the, my parents felt that we were not safe there at home as they finally got wind of wind, no pun intended, got word of the storm. <laughs> so we uh, we went to a friend's home in a small subdivision near Olympia, and we huddled in the, in the house, and, and uh, a huge Douglas fir tree came toppling down and crashed into the outdoor uh, covered patio and then landed on the roof of the home. So in... We went to this home for, for safety and ended up being struck by a, a fir tree. Nobody was hurt, but it was quite a memorable moment. So so then why, you know, here it is, what is it, 50, do my math here, 56 years later, why do a 56. book? 56. Yeah, why do a book in 2018 about the Columbus Day storm? Well, uh, I wish I would have done it in 2012, obviously. <laughs> that would have been a much better marketing ploy. <laughs> but what happened is in 2012, at the 50-year anniversary, uh UAW Atmospheric Sciences Professor Cliff Mass, who many would call the weather guru of the Northwest, did a, a, a post on his popular uh, weather blog saying, somebody ought to write a book about this storm. And he kind of laid a challenge out there. And at the same time, I received a phone call from a retired Navy weather observer who had been stationed in Guam that at that time, and he was a typhoon tracker. So he had been uh, assigned the task of tracking uh, Typhoon Frida across the Pacific Ocean, and it was Typhoon Frida that actually provided a lot of the fuel for this, for the Columbus Day storm. So anyway, these two things kind of hit me at the same time, and I started doing some research and realized that, you know, I'd written about it at the 25, the 40, and the 50 year anniversary but i i'd never seen a book about the storm and i felt it was a, a significant enough event in pacific northwest history that it deserved one and and i just embarked on a long journey and it took me from uh, uh 2012 to today to get the book <laughs> uh completed and published so what was the first you know what was the first sign that a big storm was hitting the northwest back in 1962 in the the earliest warnings, well, it was, a lot of people forget this, but there were actually three different storm systems that that struck the West Coast Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, the Thursday storm was, was significant, especially in Northern California and Southern Oregon along the Oregon coast. There were, and there were several fatalities that day, but it was, it was the regeneration of that system on Friday that really became the heavy hitter. Um, the first really warning that Friday was uh, going to be bigger than Thursday, it, the Thursday night weather reports suggested Friday would be a, a, a blustery day, but nothing out of the ordinary. But 
early in the morning, somewhere around 5 to 6 a.m., ships at sea were starting to to uh, encounter the storm, and it it was going through a, a major transformation, with, which they call a meteorological bomb. There was a sudden drop in, in barometric pressure, and they were radioing in their reports from sea to the National Weather Service, U.S. Weather Bureau at the time, and they, uh, they being the weather, the meteorologists at the station in Portland, started getting suspicious that this, if there these reports were true, if they were the transmissions were accurate, that they had a heck of a storm brewing out there. Yeah, because the technology at that point, I know there was some early computer modeling, but there wasn't the, the number of satellites and certainly any kind of weather Doppler radar or anything like that. Oh, they were just shooting in the dark. It was, <laughs> it's just incredible to think how far we've come in 56 years. Uh, you know, you look at Hurricane Florence today, and, and we've been reading and hearing about it and its path and its trajectory, its potential uh, strength. For days now. In this case, weather observers got out some warnings the morning, oh, around 10 o'clock, I believe. And it and they didn't uh, suggest it was going to be anything as serious as it became. But they, I've talked to weather, uh, uh, weather re- meteorologists that were stationed at the Portland state uh, weather station that day. And they, they told me that it was really a uh, more of a guesswork game than than science. The computer modeling was crude. No, like you say, no weather satellites, no um, Doppler radar. They had next to no information of what was coming across the vast Pacific Ocean toward the West Coast. Yeah, I've heard, I know there's a Portland radio station produced a recreation of their live coverage. Yeah. That aired about a week later. Yeah. It was, it's pretty good. I mean, I don't know how accurate. It is it, what, well done. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how accurate it follows what actually happened on the 12th, but I thought they did a nice job recreating it. Um, and they sort of seem this, it, it just seems like they're, they, nobody really appreciates it in Portland until it actually hits and the tower is falling down. And it, it's clear that this is something different, oh, yeah. different than a regular October yeah. windstorm. It had been mowing its way up the Willamette Valley. And really the first indication that it was as severe as it turned out to be was the fact that these other smaller weather sub stations were blacking out. Power was going out. Eugene went dark. Salem went dark. And that's when Portland uh, meteorologist Jack Capel from KGW put two and two together and issued his fairly uh, famous short little radio weather forecast at 515 in Portland that uh, a serious storm like we have never seen before is about to strike the, the weather bureau wouldn't say something like that huh. they, they're not they're not pr- prone to uh, forecasting any sort of record storm of any kind that that was like un- unallowed at the time I don't know what the current policy is but they were being very conservative Jack went on the air literally minutes before it struck Portland. Hmm. Was that TV or radio? He was on radio. He he would go to the Portland weather station in the late afternoon each day and gather information and then jump in his car, go back to the, uh, the K 
KGW station in Portland and put together a short little radio forecast and then do his TV broadcast. But by the time he got back that day, the power was out. TV was uh, would not return t- until the next Tuesday. Wow. And so what what are some of the more notable uh, incidents or, or things that occurred because of the Columbus Day Storm? Well, to me, some of the most interesting, in terms of consequences, uh, it, probably the most notable is the amount of timber that was uh, either knocked down or damaged by the storm. Some, some of the most common estimates range around 15 billion board feet, which is enough wood to frame a million homes. It's three times the amount of wood that was destroyed by the Saint, Mount St. Helens eruption. It's, it's just an unprecedented amount of timber to hit the ground. And it, it was too much wood for the log, in the, the timber industry and the mills, mills to handle. And it actually helped trigger the development of the log export market. That's one significant, significant consequence. Because there's so much extra raw lumber, the mills couldn't handle it, so they started exporting raw lumber or raw timber. Yeah, huh. and now now it's become a mainstay of our of our local economy. I mean, I in my town here in Olympia, the the cargo yard is stacked with with logs headed to Asia. Huh. Another really interesting um, consequence was that it as it mowed as it plowed its way through the Willamette Valley, it destroyed not in fruit orchards that were prevalent in the valley at the time. And those orchards then lay fallow for years, several years. A lot of farmers didn't want to reinvest and replant their orchards up for a crop that they wouldn't see for 10 or 20 years, filberts and walnuts and plums. So entrepreneurial wine pioneers descended on the, Willamette Valley, just north, just south of Portland, Dundee Hills area, and and bought up land quite cheaply and gambled and started planting vineyards. And lo and behold, we got a multi-billion dollar wine industry in Oregon now. So you can say that, I've never seen this written or talked about in detail before, and I have a chapter called The Wine and Wind, you can make a case that the storm played a key role in the development of the Oregon wine industry. Wow, that's fascinating. Now, in, in terms of damage, it seems like the Willamette Valley and then southwest Washington bore the brunt. Um, I mean, it, there yeah. was certainly trees falling in the Puget Sound area, but it seemed like this was more of a, yeah. a, a southern kind of storm. Absolutely. There, one of the first things I realized as I started my research is that Willamette Valley was the epicenter of the damage. And... Uh, I think it's natural that that would be the case when you consider this storm. It took it took 24 hours, almost 24 hours to travel the, the from the you know formation zone out in the ocean all the way you know come inland and then travel on a south to north trajectory all the way to northeastern Vancouver Island before it finally died out in the early morning hours of of uh, Saturday, that's a 24-hour period. Well, there, a storm is born, grows up, flexes its muscles, has its most powerful moments, and then starts to slowly decay. Mm-hmm. Well, 
the, the strength of this storm. This was a raging storm, uh, the full adult storm when it was moving through Oregon. Hmm. And now, what was your background? Other than surviving the storm, what, what kind of work? Did, I mean, are you retired now? What work kind of did you do before you wrote this book? Well, I had a 40-year career in journalism, print journalism. Hmm. I, I was an environmental re- reporter for uh, the Olympian here in uh, hmm. Washington, and um, I covered natural disasters, quite, you know, anything that came along, earthquakes, <laughs> floods, windstorms. But I, I was an environmental reporter for a long time, and then I became a columnist and editorial page editor and writer later in my career, which I I left uh, corporate journalism in 2015. Okay, so you timed your career pretty well, it sounds like. Well, yeah, I think I got out at a pretty good time. It was already in significant decline. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story. Isn't yeah. It? Um, so in, in, in the work on the book and your work as an environmental journalist, and I've, I've done a little bit of poking around myself, is there much in the, the, the pioneer era from the 1850s forward of any kind of similar storm or anything that comes close to what the Columbus Day storm did to the Northwest? That's that's a great question. I, I thought that was an important thing to try to uh, research. So so I worked on that, and, and I I can't find anything this significant. Uh, uh, there were s- many storms that caused significant damage, but nothing. Uh, there's one from, um, oh, boy, I'm going to need to double-check my dates, but it was the late 19th century that had some of the same severe characteristics as the Columbus Day Storm, but it cut a swath through northern Oregon and then kind of plowed to the east and and uh, died off as it went into the Cascade Mountains. It was called Storm King. Hmm. Uh, caused a lot of fatalities at the time, but because, bear in mind there weren't many people here to, to be exposed to the storm. There were reports of Lewis and Clark experiencing some storms in there when they overwintered on the coast however they don't even talk about trees toppling so you can't imagine that it was that severe and there was other you could find reports of storms but nothing like this yeah and now as it here we are it's it's september we have hurricanes on the east coast and you know this the northwest storm season is only a few weeks away really now I don't wish any ill will to anyone's property or certainly don't want anyone to be injured or to lose their life, but is it bad of me to be excited when I hear a big storm's coming? Is that a bad thing? I, I think it's a natural thing. I think we're all fascinated by weather. Uh, it's hard not to be. It, it's, uh, it's, it, it has an allure. Uh, it has a mystery to it. And it, it, just, it serves as quite a reminder that you know, Mother Nature bats last. Sounds like a fabulous book. It's perfectly time for the 2018 storm season. And um, John Dodge, thanks for speaking with us today on Columbia Conversations. It was my pleasure. Thank you to John Dodge for speaking with me for this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. His new book, A Deadly Wind, the 1962 Columbus Day Storm, is published by Oregon State University Press. For more information about Columbia Magazine or to subscribe, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bonnell.